Hi, everyone. Welcome back to our podcast. This is the YWCA San Antonio's podcast, Let's Talk Conversations on Gender and Race. For our second episode, I am so happy to share with you all the audio to another uh, webinar that we hosted in partnership with a local organization called Florecer Fem. And this was actually part two of a conversation that began several months ago. It was a panel with Uh, incredible women. And for part two, we were honored to have some of those women uh, rejoin us in addition to uh, two new uh, members of the panel. They were all amazing women. And the topics that were covered included allyship, colorism, the need for women to uplift each other. Uh, and so without further ado, I am happy to share with you the audio to that webinar here. My name is Hannah Zunker. I am the founder of Florecer Femme. Uh, we are an organization, we are an online and in-person community for women, and we try to host opportunities for women to get together and learn something new and learn from each other. Uh, so we have partnered with YWCA San Antonio, uh, whose mission is to empower women and to eliminate racism. To host this discussion today, This is actually our second session for a discussion on racism and empowering women. Our first session went so well, we decided we needed to host a second session to continue the conversation. Uh, so I have the privilege of introducing our panelists and our moderator today. Uh, so we have three panelists. We have Miss Amori Alugini, and I'll give you a quick background on Miss Amori. She is an activist a and a performance artist. She's a member of the Transgender Education Network of Texas and Black Future Collective of San Antonio, Texas. She is a 30-year-old Black and, and transgender woman who's been an activist and an advocate for Black and LGBTQIA rights ever since she was 19 years old. She has a degree in art from Trinity University, and she is a skincare nerd, a natural hair advocate, and like I mentioned, a performance artist, and she is currently with Haven for Hope. Uh, next, we have Latricia Hamilton. Latricia is a lawyer, a writer, and a global affairs professional. She's currently based in Washington, D.C., but she is a native Texan from Houston, Texas. She holds her JD from Loyola University, New Orleans College of Law, and she has a Master of Arts in Global Affairs from Rice University and a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology from Texas Tech University. Thank you, Latricia. And we have our third panelist, Dr. Andrea Guerrero Guajardo. Uh, Dr. Andrea is the Chief Information Officer at Workforce Solutions Alamo. She previously worked in hospital administration, higher education, and as an independent consultant in the areas of evaluation, leadership, strategic planning, and nonprofit operations. Uh, she's worked collaborati collaboratively with stakeholders at the local, state, and national levels to develop prudent public policy. She is passionate about advocating for equity, individual population health, and community wellness. Her research and scholarship has chiefly informed by critical race theory, Latino critical race theory, and Chicana feminism. And lastly, but not least, we have our moderator, Ms. Dr. Dorinda Roll. 
Dr. Dorinda is a leadership coach, a professor, and an author. Uh, she runs her own management consulting and training firm, and she's a partner at a change man management firm. She currently teaches diversity, equity, and inclusion in the executive education program at the University of Texas at San Antonio. Um, she also has been an adjunct professor in the industrial and organizational psychology program at St. Mary's University and the African American Studies program at UTSA. Uh, Dr. Roll is actually the author of Martyrs for the Movement, Black Bodies, Civil Rights, and Black Lives Matter, which was published in 2020. Congratulations on your book, Dr. Roll. So as you can see, we have a powerhouse panel and we are very excited to get the discussion started. Thank you all for joining us today. All right, I'll hand it over to you, Dr. Roll. <laughs> Thank you, Hannah. I am so happy to be a part of this uh, second discussion. I was a part of the first one, as she mentioned, um, that we had, I guess it's only been about a month or so ago, maybe two months, but um, let's just get right in because we've got a lot to talk about as we did the first time. We, that's why we're doing this second one. The first time went so well with what our panelists had to say and then the questions that came in. So very first, I want to start off with, you know, if you look at your screen and see the names of these outstanding, powerful women who are a part of the panel. Um, I want to know, first off, are we limiting opportunities for women of color based on racialized names? And um, as you notice, we do not have a Susan and Amber or any names or, or you know, anybody like that on the panel. Everybody's got a, a different type of a name. And so I'm going to start with you, Amori. What about that? Has your name cause you any, or do you think that your name has limited any opportunities for you? Thank you for asking me that question. I think when it comes to jobs that involve in-person customer service, I think it may have prevented me to some degree. But at the same time, my name sometimes helps me too, because the jobs I ended up getting paid more than those in-person customer service jobs. And I think people assume that my background may have been not a typical African-American based on my name, but in reality, I'm from Arkansas by birth, and I have been here in San Antonio since I have been three years old, and it's been 27 years. So it kind of depends. Thank you. I think people do, when they see uh, a name like yours, they assume that you're maybe from Nigeria or Ghana or, or could be France, where people, um, a lot of uh, Africans go who speak French, Amare. So um, we make assumptions based on people's names. What about you, Andrea Gorardo? No, Guerrero Gorardo. How has your name impacted you? Do you think it's caused any limitations for you? Or maybe there have been advantages? Yeah. Um... Yeah, and, and it's, it's interesting that you kind of stumbled just a tiny bit there because <laughs> my, my hyphenated name has been a, um, a, an, a, a, an evolution as was along with my personal identity, um, you know, as I've, you know, as I, and it started when I began my PhD studies back in early 2013. Um, and it, it, it was sort of, it came to, it, it sort of dawned on me. I don't know why I never thought about it before, but you know, as you're getting, you know, going into higher education and advanced degrees, you start doing a lot of reflection. 
Um, and I realized that I had never made a conscious decision to change my name when I got married, right? It was an expectation. Culturally, uh, at least in my family and in, in a lot of Latino families that I know, um, it's just the expectation that a woman will take her husband's name. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it was never an intentional decision. Um, and so all of my, and, and I got married at 20. So I was very young. Um, and so all of my degrees say Andrea Guajardo. And, and, and it dawned on me, like, I still feel very Guerrero. You know, it's my grandfather's name. It's the name that ties me to Mexico and his hometown. Um, and so when I finished my PhD work, I made the decision to hyphenate my name and start going by that professionally. And I really felt like I was bringing myself back to myself. It was claiming something um, and claiming my my own personal identity. My husband looked at me a little sideways because um, he was like, what's wrong with my name? You know, never discouraged me from ever, you know, never, never said don't do that. But he did sort of say, well, why, why, you know? And, you know, I explained and he's totally fine with it. But I do think culturally, you know, it's this, this idea that, that you're, that once you become a wife and a mother that you're supposed to give up some part of yourself. Right. Um, and so, um, although I don't know if that, that counts as being as racialized, but it's definitely culturalized, I guess, that, you know, in, in the impact that, that my personal experience and my family have had on how I, how I call myself. And incidentally, that yeah. means warrior in Spanish as well. So, yes. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, Leticia, what about Latricia? How about you? And you see, I stumbled over your name as well. <laughs> Has your name caused any limitations or advantages for you? I wouldn't say I've been limited by my name, but I've been prejudged. Mm -hmm. um, I think it takes a lot of people to, like they might see my name on paper, but then when they meet me, they get a different impression, um, in which I think that's very short-sighted. I think we limit people, we put people in a box because we look at their name and we decide, oh, this is who this person is without you know, actually meeting them. Um, I've had a lot of insulting things uh, be said to me I was um, encouraged to go by my middle name and not my first name. Um, I've had someone ask me, why would my mother give me a name like that? Oh, no. um, I have a H in my name that's silent. I've had someone tell me in a pu very public place, well, if you don't pronounce it, maybe it shouldn't be there. And um, a few years ago, when I was starting a particular um, educational program, um, the T in my name is supposed to be capitalized. And when I see something and my name has a lowercase t, to me, I'm like, oh, my name is misspelled. And so when I contacted the school and told them, they were like, well, is it like that on your birth certificate? Is it like that on your driver's license? And I said, no, it's in all caps. So I had to go and take my vital information bills up to the school and fill out forms to change my name to get the T capitalized, despite that's how it's always been spelled my entire life. Yeah. Um, so I think it's, it puts little hurdles in my path, but I feel like when people start talking to me, they get to know me, they find out my background, the conversation changes. Yeah. But I don't think it needs to be a negative conversation to begin with, because we define who we are, you know, we define what our names mean, and you know how people view us, regard us, and I don't think you should look at someone's name, hear someone's name, and prejudge them based off of that. Absolutely. And there are studies that show um, if a name sounds like it might be connected to a certain culture, 
it could affect whether or not someone is afforded um, a job interview or housing. Um, it affects people in different ways. And I will say, I, I have a name, I'm not sure it's a racialized name, but I get called Dorlinda, Borenda, all, all kinds of things. And most people don't know what to do with the last name because the E is actually silent. Um, but I think maybe for, for this group, I'm, I thank you for your contribution to that question. But where I think sometimes when you're working with um, or dealing with highly accomplished women like you all are, you figure out ways around it. It's, it's, not, it's not like a, a barrier for you. you. You kind of figure out what you need to do and not allow people to, to box you into that. So thank you for your uh, response to that question. Dr. Rowe, so, yeah. I, yeah. I, I think that the, the, at, at the heart of the issue though, is that you know, when, when folks, and, and, and I, I've had people ask me how to pronounce my name and then still mispronounce it. Mm -hmm. um, me too. And, it's got to be intentionally right, and so I think at the heart of it is is the idea that that we can. I think it's a tool used to dehumanize people of color because the the less we can make them real and human, the easier it is to treat you as an inferior, mm -hmm. and especially women of color. And so I I think it gets to the fact that people just if if they don't take the time or don't have the energy or the appetite to learn someone's name, which is one of the most basic things about someone. Then, then I can pretty much surmise that you don't care about me. You don't care about my happiness. You don't care about my, my ability to be successful. Um, and in fact, you're weaponizing my name against me. Yeah. Make me feel badly about myself to have to, you know, say, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm going to be resilient and push through. And, you know, I have grit and I have to, you know, mm -hmm. have all of these things about me just to get through an introduction. Yeah. So I, I really do think that it is a tool of racism. It's a tool used to make us feel less than we are about ourselves. And yeah. another thing we have to overcome instead of yeah. embrace. And, and you're right about that. And I, it reminds me of, um, there is an African American actress on, um, if you ever seen the, the TV series, or I guess it's a Netflix series, Orange is the New Black. And one of the um, actresses on that program, um, her family's from Nigeria. And so she tells a story about when she was a little girl, she wanted to change her name because no one could pronounce it. And she said, her mother said, no, if people can pronounce Tchaikovsky and all of these other names that are Russian names and so forth, but are European, they can learn to uh, pronounce your name. And that is, a, that is a point of how we can be diminished by our names by allowing ourselves to be called, don't worry, don't call me Dorinda, just call me D. Or people will, they'll just do that on, on their own without giving you giving permission. They'll shorten your name to something else that it, it suits them. So yeah, sometimes our names are, are weaponized against us to diminish us. I'd like to add something to that just very briefly too. I only recently started to allow myself to go by my first name at jobs that I work at, usually out of ease and being worried about concerns about gender. I will shorten my middle name to Sarah because my middle name is Sarasa. That means swan in Japanese, or it's also short for Saraswati, which is an East Indian goddess of art and creativity and intelligence. But I shorten it so that certain situations are easier for me. And for me, when I chose my name, since I am trans, you have the 
it's kind of like a rite of passage for us. Many of us change our names. I wasn't sure if I wanted something more regular that could be easy, or was I going to stick with an African type name since I've had an African type name since I've been about six. So I went with what was familiar with me and I picked something that's African, European, we're not quite sure of the origin. It might mean qualified, but it really sounds like love in different romance languages. And I wanted it to be something to remind me to love myself and try to bring that to other people. Yes. Oh, I would love it if people called me love. Instead of Dorinda, they would say, hey, love, love. Oh, that would be awesome. Thank you. So in the first part of our conversation, um, in our session we first had, we shared a little bit about our personal experiences. And Omari and I both were panelists on that first uh, series that we had. But today we want to go a little bit deeper into the topic of colorism, which came out and we didn't have enough time to really get into it. So I'm going to flip back to Latricia. And I want to ask you, how does colorism and color privilege affect women's perceptions of others and maybe even themselves? Like how do we, how do we feel about ourselves or about other women when we talk about colorism? And if you want to define colorism, that's okay. You could do that as well. So for me, I've definitely experienced it. Um, it's a big part of the Black community, unfortunately. But as I've grown and matured and learned more, a lot of different people experience colorism within their own communities in different countries. But particularly in the African-American community, it definitely stems back to slavery and you had your slaves who were in the house who were more likely fair-skinned, and you had slaves who were outside who were more likely dark-skinned. And it was, it caused like a division amongst them. And we've unfortunately carried that on through the generations. And my father is a dark-skinned African-American man. My mom is a fair-skinned African-American woman. I have eight siblings, so it's nine of us. And we are an array of colors and shades and um, I remember, you know, going back to high school, um, my brother, who's a year younger than me, he is um, very fair skin. He has really like light eyes and we look alike, but people could not get past the fact that I was darker than him. Like, how can y'all be siblings? I'm like, oh, well, we've just been living with each other our whole life. <laughs> you know, we're brother and sister, but people get so caught up on that complexion and with black women we have been taught that lighter is better and darker is less attractive i've heard so many times you know men say oh a woman is attractive um, but she would look better if she were light-skinned and it causes friction amongst women it creates unnecessary competition and it's really kind of ignorant to me you know your color doesn't make you better or less than someone else and, you know, to people outside of our community, we're all black, but yet we find ways to put labels on each other. Um, so, you know, unfortunately I've experienced it, but it's also very subjective and it's relative because to some women, I might be dark skinned, but to other women, I might be light skinned. So it's like, how can you say who's light and who's dark? Because we're all dark or we're all light to somebody else. Yeah, very true. Thank you. I did want to add to, uh, in regard to African-Americans, if you go back to slavery, not only those who worked outside and those who were in, indoors working, 
Um, you also had those whose skin color was impacted through, I hate to say breeding, but also or rape, but interactions with the people who enslaved the, the uh, African people, that accounts for it a lot as well. So Andrea, I wanna flip over to you and ask you about colorism and color privilege, about how you believe it uh, affects women's perception of themselves or how they perceive other women based on skin color. Right, and, and it's contextual, right? Because I mean, I, I am not an African-American or a black woman, um, but in, in, in my family, at least, I was considered one of the dark ones, right? And, we, and Latino families and Latino culture has the same kinds of issues with colorism as, as, I, as you just described um, in the black community. Um, and it started a long time ago because of colonization and imperialism when the Spanish um, colonized um, at least my ancestors in Mexico and, and actually had a, a very um, structured way of defining exactly where you fell on that hierarchy. And it was called the casta, right? A caste hierarchy. Um, and, it, and it depended on how close or, you know, your adjacency to whiteness, right? That, that's, that's what we're all, that, that was the goal of the system. How close could you get to whiteness and how close could you get to that privilege? Um, and the closer you were, the more power you could leverage for yourself and for your family, wealth, safety, um, all of those things. And so, so if you were a, a Spaniard who was, uh, born um, in in uh, in Spain but came here and you were born or but you were born and raised here so your parents were Spaniards who came to Mexico and they they married another Spaniard and you were born and raised in Mexico but of Spanish lineage then you were called a criollo which means you were raised here to grow right but as the the mestizos were you know the mestizo lines were created the further you got away from the whiteness the further down the hierarchy you were. So if it was a Spaniard who um, had a partner who was uh, indigenous or who was black as a result of the slave trade, you know, it, the, the names become more and more pejorative at, down the line to where if you were an indigenous person who had a child with a black person, someone of African descent, the name was a Sambrano or like a wolf, right? It was the, the names become very animal-like. And so all of that, you know, when all of that, trickles up into our consciousness as in, in our Latino families to the point to where I have four children. Um, and every time I would have a child, multiple family members would want to see the baby and say, oh, let me look, let me look. And they would, and to a T, you know, I have, I have four children. Um, two are very fair, very quote, white passing, right? One looks just like me, a dark one. Um, and one, you know, she, she's kind of in between, you know, she could be, she could go either way. But every time there was always this conversation about how well your baby is, right? How white they are, how fair skin, and how beautiful that is. Oh, the eyes are so light, the skin is so fair, you know, but my son, who's, you know, my complexion, which, you know, for, for a Mexican American, kind of in between, but still considered dark. And they say, oh, well, he looks like your family. You know, not that he's an ugly little baby, but he just looks like your family. Yeah. And so you know, how that affects me as a woman, you know, it, it definitely does make me think about um, myself, you know, and the, the way that I move about in the world. Um, my mom is, is Cherokee, indigenous Cherokee nation, but she presents as a white woman with white blonde hair and blue eyes. My dad is Mexican American, you know, and so I grew up very conscious of how I looked as it compared to my parents. I was asked whether or not that was my real mom all the time. You know, is that your stepmom? No, it's my real mom. You know, and so growing up that way and then having the children that I have with 
a spectrum of, of skin colors, right? Um, it really does make me think about how they experience the world because, you know, my daughter, she's 12 years old and she's already had in school the experience of people telling her, well, you know, you're not Mexican. You're not Mexican. You don't look Mexican. She's like, I absolutely am. <laughs> you know, And so mm -hmm. it, it affects her and how she thinks about herself. And so I think as a woman, we either, you know, as a, as a child growing up with that, as a woman in the workplace, um, I, I think that I'm conscious of what my skin color, you know, but all the things, right? My, my hoop earrings and my red lipstick, all of these things, you know, coming forward, um, I, I, I tend to just embrace it and exaggerate it. Um, yeah. So, so it, because the thing is, is I'm going to get judged one way or the other. So um, I, I want to make sure that, you know, I'm repping for the, you know, dark skin, mid skin Mexican girls with hoops and red lipstick. So, mm -hmm. you know, but, but at, like I said, as a mother, it's concerning because I, I see the impact that it has on my children. And, discuss, and it's discussed all the time amongst their friends and family members and everything else. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. As you said, um, at least in this country, we can trace it back to uh, colonialism um, of what was done on this continent in the Americas, North America, South America, and where we are. Um, but I've also, in some of my, my readings, I see that the same mindset is in Asian cultures as well. Um, and really people of color around the world, that same mindset, even in India, we see ads of people who are very fair skinned, um, which is not the norm in India. And the bleaching cream industry is an $8.3 billion industry just on creams that people can buy to lighten their skin. So. I don't, I wish it would go away, but as you said, it's something that continues on from generation to gen generation. It kind of filters up. Even your children are affected by it, uh, my children. So it, it continues. So I want to switch, go ahead. Last thing, I, I, and I think that, and it, it, for me, it brings up the, the another um, challenge that I think is so prevalent in the Latino community that I think we're just now starting to at least address out loud is this idea of anti-blackness in the in the Latino community. Um, I had lots of relatives who would get mad at us girls if we were out in the sun too long because you're going to get too black, right? And talking about the historical context of that and how it's been, well, I mean, at least in Texas, you know, how Mexican Americans were um, juxtaposed, you know, and how the experience of Mexican Americans is juxtaposed against the black experience in Texas in the 1800s, still subject to Jim Crow, still subject to racism and poll taxes and literacy tests. Um, but at the same time, um, if, if Latinos or Mexican Americans could at least claim some adjacency to that whiteness, right, then we could at least be better. We, I say we, I'm just speaking for all of us here. Absolutely. <laughs> That, that Mexican-Americans could at least claim some stuff that we're better than someone else. Like, well, at least we're not black because black people, you know, were, were marginalized so much. And so I, at least that's the, the message that I get from older relatives of mine when I talk to them about like, you know, why, why are you so racist? <laughs> you know, why, yeah. Where does that come from? And the answer is usually, well, you know, we had to, we had to survive. And the survival yeah. mechanism was creating this anti-black sentiment and mm -hmm. teaching the children and I think that's you know what manifests today. Absolutely. So talking about anti-blackness, um, let's pivot to anti-racist. Like we hear that term racist a lot, but what does it mean to be an anti-racist? And I'm gonna 
give you that question, Amari. What does it mean to be an anti-racist? But then I also want you to think about and talk to us about what does it mean to be an ally? An ally you could be an ally in multiple ways. So I'm gonna I'm gonna start off with you to answer that question about anti-racist and being an ally. Thank you very much, Dr. Dorenda. When it comes to being an anti-racist, it's calling people to do more than just say, well, I'm not a racist. It's calling people to do more than say, well, I have black friends, I have Latino <laughs> friends, I date Asian people or whatever the case may be. It's asking anyone who truly is at the top of the pyramid when it comes to race and class uh, to actively challenge their own beliefs, to ask themselves about past experiences with people of color, uh, whether they have you know, clutched their purses closer to them, even though they're in their own vehicle, whether they're at a stoplight and they're suddenly clicking their car locks, even though they should have the lock locked already, <laughs> or whatever the case may be. It's asking people to also research. So it's asking them to not just stick at, oh, well, I was taught these things in school. It's asking them to learn about the experiences of black and indigenous and brown people. And this also means not only depending on their own friends, social network, anyone they may date to do that labor for them. It's asking them to be responsible for their own uh, knowledge and it's also asking them to go beyond just what they learn for themselves, but asking them to even advocate and be an ally when they're around their own family and friends. What I mean by that is, if there happens to be someone around, like any of us on this panel, and let's say we're their friend, this is their perfect chance to you know, go beyond just I have black friends or brown friends moment. If someone says something pejorative against us, or if we work at a job and we clearly have the credentials, the badge, anything that shows that we belong there in our position, and if we're treated badly for it, they can say, well, as you can see, my friend here, we have the same badge. Is there anything you'd like to say, Amore? And then I can speak up and say, yes, I don't like how I was treated in this moment. You're treating me as if I don't have a right to be here, but we're all here. We have the similar credentials. <laughs> we're all authorized to be here. Okay, I'm using that example because I had a moment like this at work, but I had to advocate for myself. <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. <laughs> Um, uh, and I'm trying not to answer questions. This is just such a good, uh, rich discussion. Um, somebody said, go right ahead. So I'm going to take that privilege and do that. But a few weeks ago, I taught a, a webinar on what it means, to, how to be an ally. And so really, a, a part of being an ally is to use your privilege. And so I know we hear a lot about um, the word privilege, white privilege, but there are other types of privileges that people maybe don't think that they have. But anyway, as a part of the, the training that I did, I had a questionnaire with 48 questions on it. At the top of the list of privileges in the workplace is number one, are you white? You've got a lot of privilege if you're white, but also if you're male, also if you're straight, also if you are cisgender, also if you are not significantly older or younger than your coworkers. There are other types of um, privilege in the workplace that allow you to be an ally to those who may be disenfranchised in the workplace. So that's another discussion we could have. But if you, if you have an opportunity, think about that and research it a little bit to see how you might be able to be an ally 
especially in the workplace, as Amore was saying, you can speak up. Sometimes you have to be your own advocate and your own ally and speak up for yourself, but it's even more powerful when you're able to do that for someone else. So Latricia, did you want to add to that conversation? You're in the legal field, and so maybe you might have something to say about that. Well, I think in terms of racism, doing some self-examination, uh, self-reflection, asking those tough questions, um, following the deaths of Ahmaud Aubrey, George Floyd, and Breonna Taylor, I had several of my white friends reach out to me and ask me, how was I feeling? Are you okay? And they wanted to know what my experiences were living in the United States. And um, I know one person in particular, she felt like she was asking me stupid questions. But I was like, there's no such thing as a stupid question, just ask me. And she felt a bit ashamed that she hadn't previously educated herself on the plight of African-Americans in our country. And I think it's just getting out of yourself and learning that you are privileged and what comes with that uh, type of privilege and understanding that other people do not have it as easy as you do. Um, I know we were talking about being an ally Recently, I was having a conversation with another group of women and they were telling me that um, when they're in work settings and they're in meetings, if a person of color who normally look, it's like they're looked over um, to help them out, they'll say, like Andrea said, or Amori made this point earlier and I agree with her, or Dr. Roll said this, and I think she was correct on that. You know, like giving the credit where credit is due and so I think that's what it means to be an ally and how you can have an ally in this situation. Um, but yeah, like in terms of the anti-racism, just do some self-examination and understand that life is very different beyond, you know, my experiences. Yeah, thank you. And Dr. Yeah. Roll, I would probably add that, you know, I, I feel like being an anti-racist is, is more of an action-oriented descriptor, right? I mean, because racist, it, it's, I always think of it sort of as just flowing. So many people just go along with the racism, right? It's like, well, well, I donated to Black Lives Matter. That should be enough. I'm just going to go along with the flow of my life and not really because I'm privileged enough to where I don't have to worry about issues of race and class, then I'm just going to go with the flow. Being anti, the word anti means you're actually going the opposite direction of the way everything else is going. So, so that that's and, and it's hard to go against the current, right? I don't know if you've ever swum in a river the wrong, the wrong way, but it's very dangerous and it takes a lot of energy and it takes a lot of um, effort to be anti, you know? And so I, I think that, you know, when you're going with the flow of racism, you're going with the flow of capitalism that exploits black and brown people and women of color um, and, and trans people as well. So I, I, I'm, I'm being inclusive. Um, yes. But, but um, I'm supporting capitalism or I'm supporting discrimination um, in my, in my um, institution of higher education. I'm supporting policies and institutions where I know these inequities exist because I'm not doing anything about it. Just like you say, Latricia, that, that unless you're making that examination and you're taking an action, then you, are, then there's, you can't call yourself anti-racist because you're just going with the flow. You have to go anti. So... Andrea, you have been, um, if people were listening to your bio in the beginning, you've, you've done a lot of things and been a lot of places. And I want to know, 
how do we make our presence known when we're in spaces that are usually off limits to women or maybe there have been few of us there or maybe very few Latina women how do we reach back and help other women you know when we get to a place in our career and in our lives like you how, do you, how have you been able to reach back and help other women um, I think that um, firstly we, we have to make ourselves visible Right? We can't blend into the background, however much we're push, pushed into the background. And the way I do that is, you know, I'm, I, have, I have a very extroverted personality anyway. So, you know, like I, I said, can tell. I'm, <laughs> I'm an exaggeration. So, if I'm, you know, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it big. And, you know, and, and it's a little bit of a stereotype, but it's me, right? So I'm, I'm just, you know, fitting a, a stereotype, I guess. But, um, but yeah, I show up and, and, I've been called pretentious by some of um, some of my colleagues for always introducing myself as Dr. Andrea Guerrero Guajardo, because there are so few um, Latinas who achieve a PhD that that it's it's important for me to make sure that that I'm seen. So because I don't know how many times, obviously in San Antonio we have we're overrepresented here, but in other contexts in other states and in some um, in some other organizations. They may have never met a Latina who had a PhD. And so it's very important for me to represent that. And I forget who told me this, and I believe it was my friend, Shirley, Dr. Shirley Lerro, um, who says, if they, if they can't see us, they can't be us. And mm -hmm. so if we, if we don't show up and say exactly who we are and say, this is, what a, this is what a PhD looks like. This is what a medical school professor looks like. This is what a C-suite executive looks like. Um, this is what a professor looks like, um, then, then it's impossible for anyone else to think that 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 it's that it's something like for children for little girls to think that that's something that they can achieve as well or it's just too hard and i shouldn't even try so and and so in that way i make my presence known um i you're right i do i have served on several boards mostly nonprofits, um and and i enjoy um being a public servant that way um i can give you one specific example where i showed up that way um and made my presence known and it was you know most boards you you get on committees and you support the the nonprofit board through committee work and I've always been on like a health committee because it's my public health background or you know this committee or that committee but I was on a particular board and I wanted to be on the finance committee um, I'm I have no background in finance I'm not an accountant I'm not a banker and you had to be invited to be on that committee because they only wanted bankers and accountants and you know people like that so um, I, I felt like I could serve on that committee and contribute. And so um, when we were, we were all in a, like a board retreat, so there's lots of tables everywhere. And you know, you went and sat at the table for the committee that you wanted to join. Well, I had not been invited, um, but I, and the, the table was full. And so I literally dragged my chair across the floor. <laughs> and it was a, a wooden floor in an echoey room. And I dragged my floor, my chair across and sat down at the table. And I said, I'd like to join this committee. And they, oh, well, you, you know, are you a banker? No, I'm not. But here's here's what I can do. Here's here are my credentials. Here's my experience. Here's how I can contribute to this. And I basically said, I'm inviting myself to your committee. Who do I have to ask? And so, you know, the, the chairs had to go back and confer and you know go with the chair of the board of the board chair. And, and it was a whole thing. I, I expected not to hit hear back from anyone. I just figured they would, you know, pat me on my head and say, you know, go back to the health committee. Um, but no, I got an email a couple of weeks later and they said, we're, we're happy to invite you. We think, you know, we appreciate that you're the, the way that you advocated for yourself. Um, and so I've been on that committee for a couple of years now and now I'm the chair. 
at the convention. Yay, good, good for you. <laughs> I mean, you have to bring your, I mean, you, you hear that cliche, bring your own chair to the table. I did. Um, and I didn't take no for an answer. I don't, I don't, yeah. you just have to show up and make yourself visible. I like that. We all always talk about how do I get a seat at the table? Well, take your own chair, <laughs> make your way there. That's right. So um, I want to talk a little bit because, I mean, time is going by so quickly, a little bit about um, intersectionality and the different communities that we have that may be experiencing racism and oppression. How do we support each other? And then sometimes what is that, um, what do those intersectionalities look like? And so I'm going to throw that to you first, Amore, and then Latricia. I'd like for you to talk about it because all of none of us are one-dimensional. We we have multiple ways that we exist in this space. So let's let's talk. You go first, Amore. So at my job, I'm a case manager at Thrive Youth Center at Haven for Hope. And it just so happens a lot of my other coworkers tend to be LGBTQ aligned, but I am the only black one and I'm the only trans one that I know of in my immediate circle. Now, I had a situation which challenged me to actually talk about my experience and try to get people who have some identities that fall within an intersection of mine, queer, uh, LGBTQ, woman, whatever the situation may be, and try to get them to understand and empathize with me. This may sound kind of petty, so I'm going to just keep it brief, but here we go. So I borrowed a cart, a cart of all things, you know, a cart that you use to move water jugs, containers, things like that. Sure. Our, <laughs> they have a water jug that we have to fill for them daily. And I'm not super strong. I may be superwoman in certain attributes, but physically I'm okay <laughs> in others. So I only move the jug when it's halfway full. So I went to the building, I got the cart, and I usually avoid going when there's people there because I'm always afraid of altercation. Sure enough, on Tuesday, I'm moving the cart. I'm very mindfully moving the items on the cart off into the floor out of the way so no one can trip over them. And then here comes somebody. Um, excuse me, what are you doing? So I turned around and I instantly said, hi, I'm from Thrive and I actually borrow this cart every night and I always bring it back. Thank you. And she looked at me and her energy went from up here to here. And she said, oh. So then I went ahead and brought the cart back after I had filled the water container for my residence, put it back in its usual place, made sure it was dry, clean, and even put all the cart things back on it. So I decided to tell my supervisor about it later because we share identity intersections. And what do you know? After two months of working there, guess what's not there anymore? The cart. Yes. And my other coworkers told me it was okay to use the cart. They never had any issue. But when I used the cart, oh, it became a big problem. So I wrote an email to everyone that I immediately work with, only in my area. I told them what happened. I told them how it made me feel, and I just wanted them to be aware. And I did it because, in my eyes, we share identities. We're all queer, or if not queer, maybe we're people of color. Most of us are women. And I wanted to see what they would do, or at least if they would empathize. I'm very glad to say that several of my coworkers and higher-ups did empathize with me and saw how it was wrong. We're going to try to get our own cart. 
<laughs> as petty as that may sound, to avoid situations like this. But when I see people tell me Black Lives Matter, when I hear people say that they agree, it's one thing, just like we were saying earlier, you know, to say I'm an anti-racist. It's one thing to say, oh, I don't agree that, with that. But it's another thing when someone tells you a real life situation <laughs> where you work at and you actually do something about it, whether you share identity parts or portions or not. Intersectionality is essentially seeing how a person can literally be like one of those diagrams of the different circles. Each circle is an identity, like for me, trans, woman, Black, maybe well, I have an ancestry DNA test. I'm going to confirm that I, I know I'm mixed in some degree, but I'm going to find out for real now. Mixed, that could be a category as well. And then how does the world treat you based on what they perceive about these different parts of your identity? Thank you. I had to turn my mic off because I'm like, yes, wow, woo, oh, I agree. So I was, didn't want to confuse you with my interjections. Patricio, how would you respond to intersectionalities and the experiences that you've had? So Coda and I had a really in-depth conversation a couple weeks ago, and we were talking about the death of Vanessa Guillen. And I told her, even though I do not identify as being a Latina woman, it bothered me because one, she is a young woman. She's from Houston, just like I am. But I think the black community, we unfortunately have gotten used to people who look like us being shot and killed by the police and you know, there's no justice. And when I initially heard what happened to her, I was really bothered because the details are very gruesome, but as a black person, I know what it feels like when you lose someone in your community and you have no answers. You know, she had been missing for a really long time. And so um, I was telling Coda, you know, I do think the black community needs to come out and say something because um, to, my, like, to my knowledge, like, I've met Latinos who are activists locally within their communities but there's no one on a national level that I've come across yet that's really advocating for that particular community. And I don't think that, you know, I'm not saying black people have to take on everyone's causes because we do have our own, but if anybody can empathize with the community that's been impacted that way, it's black people. And so I think we have to get to a point where we just say, oh, we're just allies for, you know, our people you know, if she wasn't black, we don't care. No, we do care because we're human. You know, we're all living in this country. We see the injustices that are happening. Although she wasn't killed by um, a police officer, there are still some questions surrounding her death and those questions need answers. And I think African-Americans need to stand alongside our Latino brothers and sisters and say, we want justice for Vanessa Guillen. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to start doing that because if we just, you know, go to our corner and you go to your corner, we're never going to get anything done. We're all having shared experiences in this country. And I think we need to come together for times like this. Wow. Thank you. So I've got, um, I'm going to give the last question, I think. And Hannah, you'll let me know if we have more time. Uh, we'll go to um, Andrea. Andrea. Andrea, I'm sorry, 
here's the last question for you. How do we change the understanding of diversity and inclusion from just another box to check to true understanding of race and action, right? So not just being inclusive when we, maybe in the workplace, yep, we have, we have this, we have that, so yes, we're inclusive. But how do we really make a difference and put some action to diversity and inclusion? or at least our understanding of it. Right, and I, and I think, you know, the, the question I think is, is a good one because, because often diversity and inclusion is, is a box that has to be checked, you know, and in, 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 in it's legally enforced, right? <laughs> Where a lot of, you know, you have to have a certain percentage of, of uh, women on a, a nonprofit board. You know, there are lots of different metrics that are associated with how well you are trying to be equitable um, in in your processes, and that, that's true for for-profit companies and for um, for nonprofits. Um, I, I think how we get beyond that is that we move away from just checking the box once a year to making it an active um, campaign, an active initiative throughout the entire year, every day. How are we asking women to show up in the workplace? Are we um, conscious of that in an everyday setting, you know, especially in terms of um, in terms of the workplace, you know, our how what do our hiring practices look like? Um, how do we um, do performance evaluations? Have we have we reviewed those to see if there are, is is um, inequitable or if they if they have biases against people of color, against people who whose language is not um, who doesn't who don't have English as a first language? Um, all of all of the things that could affect a person's ability to excel in the workplace and get ahead and therefore create more wealth for, and success for themselves, how are they being held back? Um, and I think in, in terms of being inclusive with each other, um, I think we have to, you know, sort of, um, and, and this kind of goes back to, to the, the previous question is that just to understand that my fight is your fight, right? Every win for you is a win for me, right? It, there, we don't need to compete, compete for oppression and marginalization. There's plenty to go around for a while. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> and yeah. and I, I don't have to prove that my experience is, is worse. Just like you're saying that you see about, about Vanessa Guillen that, you know, it, it, it is just as bad what happened to her as what happens to black men and women at the hands of the police. It just takes a different form. And so I feel like we have to show up in terms of diversity and inclusion, how in terms of race and action, we have to show up for each other and, and make these intentional decisions to, to include each other in, in a thoughtful way, right? Because I don't know what your experience is, but I wanna listen to you. We have to be willing to listen. We have to be willing to learn and to close my mouth when it's a black woman's turn to speak, right? I, and not speak over you and not take your spot and not, you know, and not, and not you know, be my, my extroverted personality when it's not appropriate. So I think I, to me, that is, that is an action that I try to take in my everyday life. Um, and I, I try to look for ways to promote equity, not equality, equity, um, for women and women of color in my job. Um, you know, and I work for, uh, for Work for Solutions Alamo, I'm the chief um, information officer. And so I do have a lot of power there. I'm an executive on an all-male team. And so it, for me, I'm constantly looking for ways to, to make sure that, that those who have not had um, 
opportunities presented to them because of structural or systemic oppression get those opportunities. When I go to panel discussions like this or I'm involved in an organization that puts on a discussion like this and I see all men on the on the panel, I speak up and I say I'm part of this organization, I'm a board member, I need I need a commitment from this organization to have at least one woman on this panel on every panel. And yeah. and and have them commit to that. So those are ways I think that we can show up as, as allies and, and those are actions, but we have to hold each other accountable. We have to hold the systems of power accountable because, and, and this is the, this, this is kind of the time because everybody's, you know, it's very, it's very in now to be equitable. So <laughs> take advantage of, of the environment, right? But, but make sure that you call, you have to call it out at every Every opportunity, Dr. Camera Jones, who is um, former president of the um, APHA, American Public Health Association, and does a lot of study on racism in public health, she, she, her, her, her message is, you have to identify racism and where you identify it, call it out, regardless, right then. And she says, I have abandoned my commitment to white comfort. And wow. so, <laughs> so that, that means that it's, it's not easy to be the one you know, oh, here she goes again. She's going to start mm -hmm. talking about equity again. Mm -hmm. But we have to, we have to abandon our, our, our commitment to white comfort and to male comfort, right? And yes. all ways that privilege shows up. Thank you. So we do have a few moments left. I'm going to take a, a couple of questions that have come in from uh, attendees. This one uh, is, what steps can be taken by white people in the workplace who have committed unwittingly or otherwise a microaggression against a colleague who is of color uh, to make a, a colleague of a color to make amends. Like what can you do after you have microaggressed and you've come to that realization, what can a white person do in the workplace to, to try to make up for that? Or at least to acknowledge that, hey, this happened and I'm sorry for it. I'm gonna point that to Latricia. How can, what can we do about that? Are, are they asking what should the white person do or, okay. Yeah. So it happened. <laughs> so you can't change how that made that person feel in that moment. But I think the best thing that they can do in that situation is to acknowledge it and like get out in front of it before it just lingers and it festers and it creates tension in the workplace and to the point where it becomes toxic. So I think you need to address it. How can we come up with a solution to this so this doesn't happen again? And um, yeah. it wasn't in the workplace, but when I was in grad school, I experienced that from some of my peers. And I um, went to my grad advisor um, who for the program and I told her, you know, this is what happened. This is how it made me feel. You know, I can't keep coming to class every night dealing with this from my classmates. When I present, they talk over me. When I'm a black person is at the front of the classroom giving a presentation, there's jokes. There was a um, group chat, you know, discussing us, saying how they didn't think that we were fit to be in the program. That's not acceptable. And so my advisor was very proactive with it. Um, she talked to the right people. They brought us together. We're going to have a conversation about this and going forward. So this doesn't happen in our program again. This is what we're going to do. And it did make me feel better, but it still did not change the fact that 
the people I was going to class with every night felt that way about me. Mm -hmm. Wow. Amari, how would you, um, do you have any experience with microaggressions and how have, or would you have liked for the aggressor to make amends with you? I have definitely had experience with microaggressions. And unfortunately, when these things happen in a workplace, the way that they're usually dealt with is, oh, okay, for me, I don't even want to get the HR department involved because admittedly, usually the HR department is actually useless. They have all these quotas that they want to meet. They say, well, we're against racism, we're against sexism. Uh, at my old workplace, <laughs> they also were pro-trans uh, rights, at least on paper. But what ends up happening is you have one thing on paper, right? But then you have company culture. Company culture relies on the supervisors. It relies on the employees. It relies on the operations manager. It relies on those different people actually supporting and uplifting all of those policies, all of those things. So at the end of the day, when I was at that particular job, I found myself handling many situations on my own. And it actually worked out better for me because I didn't have to have someone say I was being too insensitive. I didn't have to have anyone say, at least to my face, uh, that I was making too much of a big deal. Now, admittedly, funny enough, I noticed coworkers would go to places that I would deem a safe space, like at gay clubs and different things like that, and they would not invite me. <laughs> so that was always fascinating. But I am very grateful for a certain supervisor who is a white man who actually advocated for and spoke up for me. Unfortunately, we did not have a roundtable situation with the person I was having issues with. I'm glad, like Latricia mentioned, she was able to have that type of interaction with those people, even if it may not have changed their opinion necessarily. At least they had to look at you and face what they did. Admittedly, whenever things like this happen to me, I don't really get the chance to have someone come face to face with me when a third party is involved. So. It's usually like a hurry up and let's deal with this and let's move on with our day type thing. That's why I found many times it's better for me to address these things myself. But there's a price to pay for that. I do think I didn't get certain opportunities that I know I'm smart enough to at least be considered for. And I don't really think I was invested into in the same way that some other people were because the price you pay for speaking up for yourself is you can be labeled as difficult you're not fun, you know? So yes, I've definitely faced microaggressions and I really wish that it would be handled a little differently. I'm hoping where I'm currently at, something like that would be handled differently, but mm -hmm. no promises, you know? Wow, thank you so much. We actually have one minute left, maybe only 30 seconds left. So I am not going to uh, try to take us into another question, but I will. I'll it back over to Hannah and allow her to close out the session or decide to go on if there are other questions that you want to entertain from participants. I think we could probably take this till 9 p.m. if we wanted to. <laughs> There's so much great dialogue here. Um, thank you to our panelists so much for, I mean, everyone here volunteered their time to participate today and that does not go unnoticed so we really appreciate you you know helping us have this conversation and i think it instills a lot of
Hi, Hannah. Uh, if you can hear us. Hi, everyone. This is Coda Rayo Garza with the YWCA here in San Antonio. I'm going to go ahead and close this off uh, uh, um, on behalf of Hannah. Thank you, Flores Edifan, for partnering with us. Uh, again, we are so thankful to our incredible women, um, to the incredible women on this panel. Each of you has something so special, uh, and we are just honored to have you in this community and in the world period uh, thank you to everyone who joined us please feel free to check out the audio version of this on the ywca podcast which will be released next week um, so i hope that each of you has has a great evening thank you all so much bye thanks for having me bye bye, bye. thank you everyone bye bye thank you.